mercy and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let all the earth acclaim God, sing to the glory of his name, come and see what God has done. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Blessed is God who has not withdrawn from us his love and care. Let us pray. Well, gracious God, you have given us minds to know you, hearts to love you, voices to sing your praise, and you have called us here and gathered us together to do just that. By your spirit, we ask you to be present with us, that we may celebrate your glory and worship you in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we call upon you. Amen. Our first hymn is number 164, O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. In humility and with repentance, let us confess our sin before God, the Lord, who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Let us confess our sin to this God. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, and in your compassion forgive us our sins, known and unknown, things done and left undone, and so uphold us by your Spirit that we may live and serve you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. 
Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin, which begins with confession of sin, those who do this are assured that with faith in Jesus Christ and such repentance, you are truly forgiven, not because you did those things, but because God is a merciful God and he forgives our sin through Jesus Christ. We rejoice with this and we say together, praise be to God. When God adopted Israel, he said to them, one of the commandments he gave is, you shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people who are around about you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. That's based off of um, the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus came and he said, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You are Christ's people. You have been baptized into Christ, and you are to confess his name as Lord of all. Now you must stand up and be Christians wherever you find yourself, and you all disperse from here and go into many different places, home and work and neighborhoods and school and all kinds of things, sporting events, whatever it is, and you go into those places. And as you go there, you must stand up and be a Christian wherever you find yourself. You must not confess any other name above Jesus Christ, no matter what that name is. You are to do what he has taught you to do. You are to sacrificially serve as he has sacrificed himself for us. You must be ready to give up all for his sake. You are to use everything that you have for him. You must not bow to anyone else or any other cause. Now, this is not popular in our world. Of course it's not, because our world does not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when it goes into different places, it very easily makes things, in according to wherever they are, makes those things into their gods, into those things they love more than anything else. But that is the way of the world. That is not the way of us who follow Jesus Christ. He leads us, and he gives us the grace to follow him, and to stand up as Christians who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and not to give ourselves over to the gods in our society. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 411, Shine Thou Upon Us, Lord. Written. 
Let us pray together. Merciful God, our Father, you so loved the world that you gave your only Son that he might suffer and go the way of the cross for us. We offer up our prayers in his name, and in our worship we join his ministry of intercession. We pray for the church. We pray that it would be faithful, a true witness of your sacrificial love in a world of sinful disorder, in a city of selfishness and rebellion, and to people who were self-centered and in trouble. May we be a testimony that the way to reconciliation and wholeness, first of all, with God is the way of Jesus Christ and his cross. May we not discount the exertion and hardship of the way of of Christ, and neither let us turn the cross of Christ into the corruption of sin that is so common in our world. Give us the endurance of the suffering of sacrifice and patience and helping each other and relinquishing the distractions that entice us away from the life of Christ. O Father, may we manifest the real suffering of Christ for this world. Here are our prayers for the church and in its common witness to Jesus Christ and that way of the cross. We offer our prayers for the congregation of your people to be encouraged as they come to hear your word from the pulpit and see the gospel at the table whether they be tired or busy, joyful or sorrowful. May their hearts leap within them to see and hear the church pray and sing and confess and receive your word. Especially, we do remember our own ministers and elders and deacons. Hear our prayers for them. And we do pray for the ministers and elders of our presbytery, including Michael Scout, John Ferguson, Dale Van Dyke, and Bruce Buchanan. Almighty God, we bless you for our nation, for its vastness, for its prosperity, for its freedoms. We ask you to give us discipline in the use of our freedoms. Give us knowledge in the moral order of your creation. Make us generous in the distribution of our resources. Hear our prayers for our governing officials, for our president and congressmen and women. May our leaders act with virtue and show respect to all those in this country, and may they promote what is good and right. We also pray for leaders in other nations and for nations that are being aggressive, violently aggressive, and pray you would hold back the aggression of Russia and China. Hear our prayers for those who lead us and those of other nations. O God, most compassionate to the sick and the faltering, the weak and the grieving and the needy, for these we pray. For those who are ill in body or soul, for Eduardo and Shirley, Bob and Fawn, Jeff and Linda, for Frida, and for our friends, Becky and Tammy's friend, Kara, for Kay, for Karen, for Chuck, for Angie, for Ben, for Jane, Tom, Bob, Phil, Candace's mother, Barbara, for Dominic, and others we name to you in silence. Heal the sick, strengthen the weak, comfort the sorrowful. May they find help in time of need and give them your grace through Jesus Christ so that their faith would be set on him. 
And for other needs that are on our minds, we make our petitions in silence. Please help us meet new people who may come to this church, that we'd be able to talk with them and help them understand how they need to be joined with your church in worship of you and in its ministry. We also pray for the jail ministry this week. Pray that it would point the men in the jail to Jesus. Bless the church's education so that each person in our congregation would be strengthened to mature in mind and godly living, the mind of Christ. We pray for the young members to take up that faith for themselves and be faithful followers of Christ in the church, even when they leave home and begin their own lives. For all those from our church who must live in difficult home situations, we pray you'd give them faith to trust you and hope for your restoration of our lives in this world through Jesus Christ. A restoration that is not fully visible, but is accomplished by him and one day will shine with full brightness. Here are our prayers for those with difficult home situations. Receive our prayers, O God, in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine's the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
And now let us pray. Father in heaven, as we sang earlier this morning, may our heart and will, our mind and will be thine. Add to that our affections, Lord, that we would uh, love the things that you love. We pray that you would make this effective by your word and spirit this morning, that you would support that growth in us and that fruit in us, and um, that we be transformed more and more into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our reading begins in 1 Samuel. Chapter 2, verse 12 and following. Hear now God's word. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up with the priest, all the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord, so then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of Israel spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. 
Now the young man Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves, fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places. <clears throat> that I <clears throat> that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, 
And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Our Psalter response in the bulletin. <clears throat> the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, and clear of way. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice. And righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron, <clears throat> Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies. And the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. But an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God. For the Lord, our God, is holy. We'll turn to our epistle reading in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And finally, our gospel reading in Luke. Chapter 2, verse 41. 241. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposed him to be in the group. They went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord.
In our text from 1 Samuel, there's a flower growing in the stagnant water. Now, it's distressing to see the degeneracy of the ministry of the church. And I'm not talking about church influence or power or customs fading away or being replaced. That does happen. I'm talking about moral corruption, disregarding the preaching of the word of God, and twisting the worship and ministry of the church. Moral corruption is becoming a trend in the Protestant churches. I received a Christmas letter from an old friend whose wife told me the news about their Lutheran church. They're out in California. And their previous pastor had moved on, and they had just found a new pastor whose name is Jess Shine. She is transgendered, and the church is excited to welcome her. My friend's letter used all the buzzwords of, of uh, gender politics. When my wife and I looked up this pastor, it was clear that what was important to her is a progressive Christianity breaking ground by bringing the transgender movement into the church, and she was a living embodiment of that, that change. Some Protestant churches are also sidelining, sidelining the preaching of the word for more innovative and relevant activities like drama and music concerts, political get-out-and-votes motivational speeches, and many other such things, in place of the sermon in the worship service. A Presbyterian worship service in Louisville, Kentucky, had most of the traditional worship elements in it, things that we would do in our worship. Those elements included a call to worship, a confession of sin, hymns, two readings from Scripture, and these two readings were the call, uh, God's call to Jonah the prophet, and then uh, Jesus' call to his disciples. They had, they had prayers, they had a benediction, but they had no sermon. And yet, the, the report says the worshipers felt, uh, left the, the service feeling filled and blessed. Instead of a sermon, organizers invited those in worship to consider the callings that they've heard throughout their lives. They were asked, as part of their consideration, to reflect on the roads they had not taken and what had inspired them to take, these paths, take the paths that they, they did take. And so they left uh, having thought about that, I guess, and considering all the different callings in their life and uh, what led to that, and that was uh, very stimulating for them, so they say. And it's not just Protestant churches with moral corruption and twisted worship and ministry. The Roman Catholic Church is in turmoil because of a synod of German churches that is trying to shake up the Catholic Church. It's a big deal over in Germany. It's actually a large number of German Catholic churches. This faction of German churches, among other things, wants the church to authorize the marriage of gay couples, the ordination of gays, and adopt the new gender ideology. And this redefines the church's ministry. What sins must be confessed and repented? From What do we have to repent from? What is the counsel of the church to those who are struggling with gender questions? And at the center of it, is whether the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms people and their whole life or not. So you see, by the way these German churches are, are framing the question or pushing their agendas, they are trying to twist or redefine the church's ministry. Now, I don't mean to imply that all the churches are becoming degenerate and stagnant. There are many churches that are seeking to faithfully preach the word of God and uphold integrity in the ministry and its worship. And yet, there is a level of degeneracy and stagnation in every denomination, in every 
kind of Protestant church and as we see even in the Catholic church. And all of this causes anguish of heart and mind for those who want to remain faithful to the Orthodox Christian faith and practice. At this present time, it looks like deformity is growing in the church's ministry. As much as we might want, we cannot just jump out of time and go back to an earlier day. And even if we could, when we study the church in the past, we discovered that it also degenerated. And that's why there were monastic movements such as the Franciscans um, or the Jesuits. And that's why there was a Protestant Reformation, because there had been degeneration within the church. This degeneration and the degeneration and stagnancy, the degeneracy and stagnation of the church weakens the ministry of the church. And if the ministry fails, the church has no leadership. And when I'm talking about the ministry of the church, I'm talking about its leadership, the people like me who are to be uh, the ministers ordained and leading the church. So here we are today, and we've heard the story in 1 Samuel that God's action about God's action in the midst of a degenerate ministry. First, in this story that we heard from 1 Samuel, there is the priest Eli. God had chosen Eli's household to minister at the tabernacle, the house of the Lord. And there's good reason to believe that Eli was a Levite who belonged to the Mushite line of the priesthood because of what the Lord says in verses 27 and 28 of our reading. A prophet comes to Eli and says to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense to wear the ephod before me? And the answer, of course, is yes. God did choose uh, Eli's line that goes back. That he's called, it's a Mushite line of the priesthood. There were different lines of the, of the Levitical priesthood, and it's called Mushite because of Moses. It goes back to Moses himself. The priestly line that the Lord is referring to is that Mushite line of priests that traces back to Moses. But this priesthood had become degenerate and stagnant. And the story in 1 Samuel opens with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests with their father. They ministered at the tabernacle in Shiloh, where the sacrifices were burnt and offered to the Lord. And verse 12 says that these two were worthless men. The word in the Hebrew is actually Belial. They were Belial. Belial was a pagan deity. So this would mean that they were worthless to the ministry, the priestly ministry, at the tabernacle of the Lord because they were like this, pre, this pagan deity. They were sons of Belial, and what they did was against the Lord himself. Their offenses are laid out in the story. The first sin of the sons of Eli has to do with the priestly share of the sacrificial meat. <coughs> what they did is they violated the law of God, and so it was a sin. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 3, <clears throat> specifies that the priests were to be given a share of meat from the sacrifices. So whenever someone offered a sacrifice, there was a portion that was to go to the priests. And Deuteronomy 18, three, th verse 3 says, They shall give to the priest the shoulder, the two cheeks, and the stomach of the animals. To me, that doesn't sound very appetizing, but it was their share and apparently was uh, considered quite sufficient. 
The sons of Eli went around to the meat cooking. Their servants went around to the, to the uh, meat that was cooking in the people's pots. And they would take a large fork and they would thrust it into the pots and pull out whatever portion was attached to the fork. Inevitably, this was much more than their fair share. And how, of course, could they control what parts of the meat they took? So it would have been, much, it would have been more than just what Deuteronomy 18 specifies. They were not satisfied, these priests, they were not satisfied with their assigned portions of meat that the law of God assigned to them. So that was a sin. They were violating God's law for the priests. The second sin was an offense directly against God. Verse 15 says, Moreover, before the fat was burned in the sacrificial offering, the priest's servants, who were acting under the orders of the priests, would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from, your, from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, the priest's servant would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. The priest's servant, the servant acting for the priest, is wanting the meat with the fat attached. And then we're told, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, in verse 17. Now again, the law of God stipulated that the fat of the offering was designated for the Lord. It didn't matter what kind of offering it was. Any meat offering, the fat was always to be burned for the Lord as part of the offering to the Lord. By seizing the meat before the fat had been removed, they were taking the Lord's portion Verse 17 says this was a great sin against God. The story goes on and tells us that the sons of Eli also slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tabernacle. The tabernacle had two large uh, uh, doorposts and large doors, and these women served there. Um, And it tells us that these two sons slept with them. The priests of Phinehas and Hophni were violating these women. And as bad as that is, by violating these women who served at the tabernacle by opening its doors, they were violating the tabernacle itself. Eli's priestly line had become degenerate. The priest Eli is also described in the story. Verse 22 says he was very old. We hear that as Americans and we think, well, there just needs to be a a new freshness and innovation that comes to the priesthood and to the uh, to the ministry that it had but that's not the point here it's 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 not saying that the priesthood was out of date because he was old and that there needs to be something new that comes along rather this priestly line had degenerated and Eli represents that degeneracy because when you grow old you degenerate Another description of Eli is that he could not hear, and by that I don't mean that he was physically deaf. What I mean is that there was no hearing going on during his priesthood, and again, he represents that, um, that there's no hearing. There was no hearing with his sons. Eli heard the reports of his sons' immoral behavior, and he warned them in verse 25 that if they kept sinning against God, they would have no one to deliver them from God, from the Lord. But verse 25 says they would not listen to the voice of their father. They, would, they did not hear. There was also no hearing for all of Israel. As the story shifts to Samuel, we're told that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Israel did not hear the word of the Lord. 
And it's worth pointing out that when the Lord did speak to young Samuel, Eli didn't hear it. Now, we might think, well, he spoke in his heart. And there's no indication of that. It was an external voice, and Eli didn't hear it. And one more thing about Eli. Later, we will learn that Eli was fat in chapter 4. <coughs> Today, when we hear that, we think of our appearance, we think of our health. But in the context of 1 Samuel, it indicates something else. And in fact, uh, fatness uh, in, in Scripture often means this. It, it, it reflects the fact that he was enjoying the food of, um, of the priesthood and that he was enjoying the fruit of his son's corruption and he'd become fat on it. They were going around taking far more than their share. They had plenty, more than enough to eat and Eli uh, presumably is sharing in that. So he didn't abuse the priestly office like his sons did, but he benefited from their sin. And so that's Eli and his sons. With Eli's house, the priesthood had become degenerate and stagnant. The priesthood was to give the people an an inviolate access to God through the sacrifices and entrance into the tabernacle. That's what the priesthood was to do. The priestly house of Eli violated the sacrifices and they violated the women who opened the doors to the sanctuary of God. And we might stop and think, okay, this is very interesting. This was a terrible thing happening in the days of Israel, but why does it matter? What's the big deal about a degenerate degenerate priesthood or a stagnant ministry? There have been a lot of these over the years, right? Can't we just work around it? Have our own personal relationship with the Lord. Hear his word on our own. Make our own offerings to him. Well, it matters because God established the priesthood for Israel and the ministry for the church so that his voice may be heard and his grace may be received by his people. The Lord himself established it for those reasons. With the priesthood, the people were to hear the word of God. However, the priests in Eli's household did not hear the voice of the Lord and they did not share that. Uh, the voice of the Lord with the people. So as our reading says, the word of the Lord was quiet in those days. Well, God brought down the house of Eli, but in doing so, and this is towards the end of chapter 2, a serious question is raised for us. After listening to the degeneracy and the stagnation of the priesthood of Eli, we are told that the Lord sent a prophet to speak to Eli in verse 27. And we don't know who this prophet was, but he delivered a message from the Lord to Eli. And basically the message is that God was going to shut down the priestly line of Eli serving at the tabernacle because of its sin and offenses. And if you look at verses 30 through 31, the Lord says to Eli, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. God made this promise to Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. So the Phinehas in our story is named after Phinehas, who goes all the way back to uh, the days um, when Israel was coming out of Egypt. And Aaron had a grandson named Phinehas. And so God made his promise to Phinehas as a covenant of perpetual priesthood. And that was because Phinehas was jealous for God when he saw the people of Israel sinning. And that's also, that whole story is in Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 25. So God made a promise to Phinehas, and he restates his promise to the priestly line of Eli, because Eli's priestly line goes back to Phinehas. And 
he, uh, the Lord restates that, that uh, promise in our text. And then he says, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And then God tells Eli, behold, the days are coming when I cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. Now the promise said that you will be priests for me who go in and out before me forever. And now he's saying, the Lord is saying, I'm going to cut off the strength and the strength of your father's house, your strength and the strength of your father's house. So God made a promise, and now he was nullifying that promise. And the question has to do with God's faithfulness. Does God make promises he doesn't keep? You can see why that would be very disturbing. Because <laughs> Scripture gives us many promises. God promises many things in Scripture to us. And if God makes promises he doesn't keep, then how can we count on these promises? To rightly understand this whole matter it, with uh, Phineas and Eli's household, to rightly understand this, we must remember that Eli's house sinned against God and broke the covenant that God had made with the priestly line of Phineas in Numbers. And that covenant was conditional on the priests faithfully executing their service to the Lord. So Eli's sons broke that covenant, and therefore God nullified his promise. But as we shall see, God does not revoke a priesthood for Israel. God is faithful to his purpose, even if he nullifies a covenant that he made with Eli's priestly line. And he makes another promise according to his purpose, affirming his purpose in chapter 2, verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. So we need to understand that he made a promise according to a covenant with Eli's priestly line. That priestly line broke that covenant, so God nullified it, but he didn't change his purpose. And that purpose is set out again in verse 35. Now, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, this is a story with a flower growing in the stagnant water, and the flower is Samuel. There was Eli and his sons, and there was Samuel. Samuel was a gift from the Lord, as Hannah said, after she weaned him and brought him to the tabernacle. She said, for this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. The Lord gave him to me. And so Samuel began his stay at the house of the Lord. He began his training as a priest. Fittingly, his mother made him a small ephod and a robe in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Now, this wasn't about making him cute. Now that I have two little granddaughters, I see uh, people in my family and their families, both sides, who give them little dresses and things to make them cute, and they really are cute. But that's not what's going on here. An ephod was a priestly garment. In the Lord's covenant with Israel, God instructed Moses to make the garments for the priests, and one of those garments was an ephod. Hannah's mother was helping to prepare Samuel as a kind of priest. Now, after telling us of the degeneracy and the fall of the house of Eli, the story shifts to Samuel working alongside Eli in the tabernacle. And chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the young man, Samuel, was administering to the Lord under Eli. The story makes clear that the Lord was making a new beginning with Samuel. For one thing, the Lord began to speak in Israel again. 
Samuel was sleeping in the precincts of the tabernacle when the Lord's voice called to him, Samuel, Samuel. And we are told that before this, the word of the Lord was infrequent in those days. It was rare. So what, it, was, it was not happening, and now it's starting to happen. The Lord's voice is being heard. And what's interesting about this is that Israel had the sacred writings of Scripture. They had the Torah. They had Joshua and Judges, or at least the um, stories that are all contained in those writings that we have. And then, of course, the, the covenant and the commandments and all that. They had that. And even so, the word of the Lord was not heard much. The Lord held back his word, even though Israel had the scripture. It should have been coming with the priesthood, but the priesthood was stagnant, so the Lord's voice was not heard. Unless the Lord is speaking with his word, the people will not hear it. But with Samuel, the Lord was speaking again. The priesthood of Eli was not hearing the Lord, but Samuel did. Samuel heard it. Samuel means God hears. And now Samuel was hearing God. It's a great play on words. The Lord was calling Samuel like he called Moses and others in Israel. This is a call story in the the middle of all this. And God was calling him. The Lord speaking to Samuel was a call. It was the Lord's call for Samuel to be a kind of priest and a prophet. However, this wasn't just simply for Samuel. This is not just a personal, isolated, individual experience. It was for Israel. The Lord was speaking again in Israel with Samuel. And at the end of the story, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. The Lord was speaking again in Israel. With Samuel, God opened the doors of the tabernacle so that the Lord's word would spread out. The Lord is at work with Samuel, and throughout the story it is said that Samuel was growing. So we are told in chapter 2, verse 26, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now this was no ordinary human development. The Lord was at work causing this growth. The word growth is used again in reference to Samuel at the end of the story in chapter 3, verse 19. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. There's an emphasis here on Samuel's growth. In contrast to Eli's son, sons, the Lord was growing up a new ministry for Israel. Now keep in mind that Samuel was growing in the stagnant waters of the ministry of Eli's priesthood. The Lord was making Samuel grow while Eli's sons were transgressing the law of God and taking more than their share of the sacrificial meat. Samuel was growing while the priests were sinning directly against God by taking the fat from the offerings. Samuel was growing while Hophni and Phinehas disregarded their father's warnings about their sin. Samuel was growing while the doorway to the tabernacle was being violated by Eli's priestly sons. The Lord was growing up Samuel, Samuel while God's judgment came down on Eli's priesthood and the Lord nullified his promise. The Lord is able to grow up a faithful ministry even in stagnant and degenerate waters. And even more so, God did this with his son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps you notice the verse in our Samuel story that connects with the gospel reading. First Samuel says, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor of the Lord and also with man. 
And then if you go to the Gospel of Luke, in our lesson it says this of Jesus, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then it tells, then it tells the story of Jesus in the temple, and it concludes that story saying, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in, statu- in statu- stature and in favor with God and man. Almost exactly the same line that we have in 1 Samuel. Jesus grew up according to the promise of God. God promised to bless the world and save it from its sin, and he gave Jesus. Jesus grew up as the flower of God's salvation. Remember that hymn we sing at Christmas, Lo, how rose air blooming? Well, where is it blooming? Jesus grew up as the flower of God's salvation, but he grew up in the stagnant, degenerate waters of the priestly ministry of his day. In the Gospel of Luke, that priesthood, the Jewish priesthood, is called out for not giving life to the sick and the ailing on the Sabbath in chapter 6. The priesthood is called out for being blind, the blind leading the blind, and for being hypocrites who excuse their sin by condemning others for their sin, but but condemning others for their sin. It also uh, rejected God's prophets and the word of the Lord, as Jesus says in Luke 13. In the temple, Jesus confronted the priestly ministry as compromised with the Roman government, which is why they were trading with the Roman coinage of Tiberius. And Tiberius is poised, he's, he's, his imprint is on the coins they were using that depict him as a god. And that's allowed into the temple um, in the days of Jesus. And he confronted the priesthood on that. So in these waters, Jesus grew up as the savior of the world. Jesus grew up as a new kind of priest Our epistle lesson in Hebrew says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. A degenerate and stagnant ministry does not prevent God from growing up something new. Now, the church has always had some level of degenerate and stagnant ministry. It always has. As much church history as I know, and I've read a fair amount, um, it's always there. Sometimes it's been more rampant than at other times, but it's always been there to some degree. Aside from the moral degeneracy of the ministry of the church, of which there are growing numbers of examples today, there's a widespread stagnation of the ministry of the word at this present time. There's plenty of preaching, but is the Lord's voice being heard? Or, as 1 Samuel says, is it rare in those days? The ministry of the word is to preach the word of God. And this involves two things. This means preaching the texts of scripture. But preaching the word of God is not merely working through the text and explaining it. You can do all of that and not ever hear the word of the Lord. Preaching is more than explanation. The Lord's voice is heard when the ministry of the word brings the message of the text of scripture to the people who are gathered to hear it. The message comes out of the text of scripture, which keeps it anchored to the word of God. And that message is brought to the people who hear by addressing the people with that message. I can sit up here and explain a text with, go right through it and explain it all, and none of you need to be here. And I can explain all of that. It's not necessary for you to be here for me to explain the text, unless 
you happen to want to understand, okay, well, what does that mean? What does this mean? But I can do all of that without even really recognizing you or speaking to you. The message is to be brought to the people who hear the, uh, the word of God by addressing the people with that message. And while all those who hear the message have some basic things in common, everyone in the world, if you address them with the text of Scripture, have a few things in common like sin and a need for a new life from God, there are, there are differences among people in terms of the society in which we live, the circumstances of our lives, the struggles we face, the questions and concerns that we have. The ministry of the word must bring the message of the text of scripture to real flesh and blood people in a place and in a time. Proclamation is declaring who God is and what he has done as he set out in scripture with Israel and Jesus Christ and how we are to respond to that with faith and obedience and how that is directed to us here today. Now, if just one or the other of these two aspects of the ministry of the word are missing, then the voice of the Lord will be rare. We might understand the text, but we haven't heard the voice of the Lord. God speaks with the ministry of the word that proclaims the message of the text of Scripture to those who hear it. And we are in a time when either the message of the text of Scripture is not being brought forth by the ministry of the word, they're bringing out some message from some other source, or it is not being proclaimed to the people who are gathered to hear it. And so there is much stagnation in the ministry of the word today. However, the stagnation of the ministry of the word does not keep God from growing up a ministry that is faithful. So here's another way to think about it. Over the years, there have been certain ministers who have faithfully proclaimed the word of God, and they have had an impact on many, and um, and I've heard the word of God through their ministry. Then they've died. People like John Leith, who was an ordained minister and my professor in seminary, like R.C. Sproul, like Tim Keller, like Hugh Oliphant Old, like Raymond Brown, and many, many, many others. I'm talking about contemporaries. And once they're gone, I feel saddened, and I feel like the church won't be the same. Who will replace them? The church's ministry of the word seems like it's declining and languishing. Do you ever feel this way? When you hear that somebody has died, he's been a a great uh, minister in the church. Well, here comes the message of our text from 1 Samuel today that tells us that God grows up a new ministry even in the stagnation of the old. And once we hear that, the Lord's voice with the preaching of this text, then we have hope. Instead of mourning the loss, we can wait with eager expectation and look for the new growth that God gives. Look with faith for God's growth in the ministry of the church, even when there is degeneracy and stagnation, and pray that he will give and begin a new ministry of the word in the church. Let us pray. By your unending grace, O Lord, cleanse and build up your church along with its ministry of the word. And because it cannot continue in fruitfulness without your strength and power, bless it and give it new growth so that your word may be heard and spread to all people. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith with the the, uh, Nicene Creed.
We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, and for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory, the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 370, Revive Thy Work, O Lord. Jesus said, I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you shall see me, because I live, you will live also. He said these words before he went to the cross. He reassured and promised this to his disciples. And then, of course, they saw him again after the resurrection, but then he came to be present with them in a more permanent way by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, 
And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now there are threats to the community of Christ, and the threats sometimes are we ourselves. Uh, but also the ministry of the word can sometimes turn into a threat for the community of Christ. And the powers of sin threaten to undo us from without and from within the church. Many dangers would destroy us if they could, but in this meal, there's a reassurance that happens. The Lord assures us that he is victorious over sin, and he will not let the powers of evil or the degeneracy or the stagnation of the church triumph. The word of God says that he has disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. With faith in Christ and by the power of his grace, we now love one another. We look to the interests of each other. With faith in Christ and by the power of his grace, we do not return evil for evil, but we bless each other and we are zealous for what is right. All who have been baptized, who profess faith in Christ, and are communicant members of a Christian church are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. As you accept this gracious invitation to the Lord's table, you confirm that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin. You are endeavoring with all your heart um, to, to follow him, and you're seeking to live with love and concern for your fellow Christians with whom you'll be eating and drinking. Join with me now and give you thanks to God for our new life and our salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is indeed right and good to give you thanks and praise, Almighty God and everlasting Father, through Jesus Christ your Son. For you lead us into the desert of repentance so that through a pilgrimage of prayer and discipline, hearing your word and following Christ, we may grow in grace and learn to be your people once again. Through worship and prayer and acts of service, you bring us back to your generous heart. Through study of your holy word, you open our eyes to the presence of your salvation in the world. You free our hands to welcome others into that radiant splendor of your grace. And as we prepare to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in a couple of weeks, with joyful hearts and minds, we bless you for your mercy, and we join with that host of heaven who are forever praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Accept our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we follow his example and obey his command, grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, these gifts of bread and the cup may be for us a communion in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We do receive them in, in, with that great faith that the church has received from the beginning. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We say these words with trust and belief. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself made once for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom. 
And with this bread and this cup, we make the memorial of Christ, your Son, our Lord. Accept through him, our great high priest, this our sacrifice of thanks and praise. And as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty, renew us by your spirit, inspire us with your love, and unite us in the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Almighty God, we see that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul, that we may be your faithful servants for this world. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Final hymn is number 352, Renew Thy Church, Her Ministries Restored.
Christ give you grace to grow in holiness, to deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow him. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Please be seated, and good morning to you all. Um, just a few uh, announcements as we get started. Uh, first, on a personal note, the uh, inclusion of the name Chuck in our prayers this morning is my dad uh, is having some health issues, um, undefined so far as we know, but um, in, uh, in, in uh, hospitalized for observation overnight last night, so if you could keep him in your prayers, the Klauses uh, would certainly appreciate that. Uh, we do have our fellowship meal today, as uh, is always evident by about sermon time as the uh, aroma comes uh, wafting in, at least for those of us in the in the doorway there. So uh, please do stay and enjoy that together. Uh, tomorrow, or not, sorry, not tomorrow, but next Lord's Day, we do have a uh, another special day, and that uh, missionary Mike McCabe will be here uh, presenting on the work that he is doing, and um, that'll be during our Christian Ed time. Uh, on March the 10th, so uh, assuming you can uh, are able to stay, it would be appreciated um, and a good chance to see uh, some of the ministry in which we participate that goes on, you know, outside of these walls, and uh, so please join us for that. Um, Thursday Bible study continues, uh, 7 p.m., on uh, the development of the Christian canon, and on Friday this week is uh, prison ministry, I believe is this week, so if you would lift up... Um, that and uh, just allow us to be, um, you know, what what these men uh, need us to be, and allow uh, ask that their ears be opened um, to uh, to truly uh, let let the word of the Lord be life changing um, for those who are incarcerated. Um, I believe that's all I have at the moment. Is there anything from the floor or from? Um, so we have the missionary coming. He's a missionary in China. So that's something to look forward to, his perspective on what's going on there. We do have a, a, a power a projector, right, mm-hmm. that works? Because they're asking for that. So um, we need to get that set up next week. But uh, other than that, we should be ready. The Roberts are going to host him. And um, he'll be here. He actually, he's coming for the worship service. And then he'll teach or, you know, do his presentation during the class, so. Yes, Mrs. Wilson from the back row. Uh, gentlemen, I think we're doing a statement right now that we're praying for that we're worried about how to plead guilty or not guilty. Yes. Uh, so I met him on, a, on uh, the fourth Friday, so I don't, I don't know. Um, that, that one is usually led by um, Adam and Terry. So I uh, I will check. I had given them a heads up, so I'll I'll check in with that. Um, I also might be able to track him down as a matter of public record, but I'm not sure. 
So I will do my best, though. So anything else? Fantastic. If you give us a few minutes, we can all enjoy some, uh, some time gathered around the tables.